Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yes, thank you for uh, the music team leading us in musical worship. It's been a great morning thus far, praising the Lord. Let's continue our worship by turning to God's Word. I'll have you turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. The text for today is 13 through 41, so we got a lot to get to. I'm actually going to have you put your thumb or your bookmark or whatever in Acts 13 and turn to Isaiah 55 for the scripture reading. Isaiah 55. And if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'm just going to read the first three verses here. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has money, no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Our Heavenly Father, we just give you praise and honor and glory that you are a God who keeps your promises, that you do what you say you're going to do, that when you establish a covenant, your steadfast love endures forever, and these things will come to pass. We just pray that you would be glorified in our time this morning, that you would speak to our hearts, transform our hearts, give us ears to hear your word today. All for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we have so much to get to. Again, we're just going to dive right in here. If you were with us last week, you remember Luke's telling us of the Holy Spirit's calling of Saul and Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas now. Uh, Paul and Barnabas were ministering at the church in Antioch in Syria when the Spirit, likely through one of the prophets in the church at that time, said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Immediately they set out to Barnabas' native island of Cyprus where they went into the synagogue to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As they made their way from the east coast to the west coast of this island, they encountered two men. One, a Roman official named Sergius Paulus who summoned the missionaries desiring to hear the word of God and the other, a Jewish false prophet magician named Bar-Jesus, or Son of Salvation, whose aim it was to stop him from hearing the word of God. This was met with a stern rebuke from the Spirit-filled Paul, along with an authoritative pronouncement of temporal blindness on the magician, a blindness that was immediately inflicted upon this man by the Lord. This was, of course, followed by a Miraculous conversion, as Luke said in verse 12, then the proconsul believed. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished, not at the miracle, 
but at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, and he believed. Which brings us to our verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Let's stop right there, all right? There's a lot to unpack this morning. So much text, so little time. Luke says these guys, Paul, Barnabas, John, Mark, went from Paphos, which is the capital city of Cyprus, to Perga. If we look on the map here, if you can bring that map up, Jake, we can see their route here. They go from the capital city. Remember, they started at Antioch of Syria, went over to Salamis, down to the capital city, Paphos. Then they're going to go up here to Perga, which was about 160 miles uh, to the coastland. Then there's another 25-mile trek to Perga before they go to Antioch and Pisidia. Uh, Don't mind my clip art there. They already had it, but I thought that the red circles would help a little bit. I'm trying my hardest here. Um, That 25-mile up uh, to Perga before going to Pamphylia, uh, we notice, let me just start over here. In Acts 15, verse 38, we see that John Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia. And Luke says here, John left them and went back to where? Jerusalem. He left them. He deserted them. You remember, he was kind of like acting as their intern, as their helper as they went from Antioch to Cyprus. Now all of a sudden he up and leaves. Why would he do that? Surely there must be some error in the text here as there would never be conflict among born-again believers, right? Uh, There would never ever be a point of contention or disagreement in the church, certainly not first-century Christendom, right? I know a lot of folks who say we should follow as closely as we're able the examples of the early church, and I agree with that to some extent. They're are principles that are certainly applicable to our lives and necessary to abide by, but we mustn't think that this early church operated without its problems. We, we shouldn't think that this was all smooth sailing here. I mean, remember, we've seen Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. We, we've, we've seen a, a false profession in chapter 8. We've seen dissension in chapter 10. And now here's Paul, the great apostle on this spirit-led journey, this mission, now, along with Paul, or along with uh, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, who suddenly find themselves without their intern, without their helper. Now, we don't know exactly what happened here. There's a lot of speculation as to why John Mark went back home. Uh, some folks say he wasn't thrilled about this mission to the Gentile. He didn't like it, uh, seeing this high-ranking Roman official hearing the message of God's grace. He wasn't on board with the Gentile inclusion into the gospel of salvation. I don't think that's the case. But others say that he was afraid of what lied ahead. Okay, this area in Pamphylius, specifically this long mountain range they were about to go through to get to Pisidia, was rampant with thieves. It had bandits. It had all kinds of danger, exposure to the elements. In fact, much of the tribulations Paul wrote about later is is thought to have occurred on this journey here where he was in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, his own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, 
danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Some folks don't think uh, that Mark was too keen about going through all this. Okay, so he ran back to his mommy in Jerusalem. I'm not making that up. That's where she's from. She was from Jerusalem. We saw that in Acts chapter 12. They thought he was a bit of a mommy's boy. Notice he didn't go back to Cyprus. You know, he didn't go back to Antioch in Syria. He went all the way back to Jerusalem. And Paul wasn't happy about this, was he? Oh, no. Acts 15. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. They were cousins, by the way. But Paul thought it best not to take the one with them who had withdrawn from or deserted them in Pamphylia, who had not gone with them to the work. Paul says, what? Who? You want to take, take this guy with us? You mean this guy who bailed on us when the going got tough? No, I'll take Silas. I'll go this way. You take Mark, you go that way. And as one commentator said, it appears that the honeymoon is over. Quote, this verse should be like a flashing lighthouse beacon to all missionary-minded churches seeking to penetrate the darkness. Be ready for relational conflicts. It's not a matter of if, but when they'll occur. They will occur. Do you believe that? You think we'll have conflict in this church when we preach the word of God here? You think, you think Satan would like to attack what we're, what we're doing here this morning? Of course he would. Of course he would. We, we're not always going to have complete unity on all things. Not why we're in these mortal bodies. Not why, not until we're with the Lord will we have unity. Now, it's worth noting that these guys were going to reconcile at a later date with Paul even asking Timothy to send him John Mark who would be of service to him. Very profitable for the, for the ministry, for the work that Paul was doing later on in life. He would even go on to author a gospel which bore his name. So Barnabas and Paul, they make this long, dangerous journey up from uh, Perga, to Antioch in Pisidia. It's a 3,600-mile increase in elevation. Uh, remember, excuse me, 3,600-foot. I know we have some tall mountains around here, but 3,600-mile, um, 3,600-foot increase in elevation. Remember we said last week there's Antioch in Syria. This was the sending church, and then there's Antioch in Pisidia. Now, some say that this sharp rise in elevation actually alleviated some of Paul's health issues. In fact, when he wrote to his letter to the Galatians, which is where this province is, which is where this uh, synagogue will be, he, he wrote this. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. So this makes sense why this would be on his first missionary journey. And it is at this time that, as was their custom, they go into a synagogue. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says this. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. In those days, the synagogues, 
they had these rulers, the rulers of the synagogues. They acted as administrators, really organizing and conducting the services uh, both throughout the week and on the Sabbath. They typically uh, prearrange or even spontaneously invite men to share a word from the law or the Torah and the prophets. And we remember this back in Luke 4 with our Lord, right, where he stood up and he read a portion of the scroll of Isaiah only to sit down and declare it fulfilled in their hearing. You remember he started out reading this section and everybody marveled at him and they spoke well of him. But by the end of the narrative, he ends up being taken outside by these same people who now wanted to throw him headlong over this cliff. But why? Well, he said during the time of Elijah, when there was great apostasy in the land, great unbelief in Israel, he said during this extremely difficult time, God didn't send his prophet to the Jewish widows and lepers, but instead he extended his grace and compassion to who? Gentiles. Gentiles, that's right. A couple of Gentiles. Very interesting, very relevant to our section uh, of Scripture this week and next. Now, interestingly, back in that synagogue in Nazareth, uh, Jesus stood to read, sat down to expound. In the northern synagogues, however, in the Greek provinces, it was more common to stand to give an exhortation. So Paul stands to give this exposition, kind of like we're doing now. The synagogue ruler came to him and says, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And Paul says, Don't mind if I do. Don't mind if I do. And Luke writes in verse 16, motioning with his hand, he says, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Listen. Now this is really exciting for me. More than any other messages I like to preach, I love to preach on sermons from the Bible. I love preaching sermon texts because no matter what happens this morning, you're all going to leave this place having heard a perfect sermon. I, I can't improve on it. It's uh, inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. So you can leave here today and say, wow, that was a perfect sermon. You can go tell all your friends. I heard a perfect sermon this morning at Lakewood Bible Chapel. Paul stands up to deliver this sermon. He says this, men of Israel, these are his own people, and God fears, just like Cornelius from chapter 10, right? those who had a, a reverential awe for the God of Israel. And everything that follows is this sermon from Paul where he explains who God is and what God has done. A sermon explaining how the steadfast, faithful love of the Lord of Israel endures forever. You've probably heard for decades uh, American politicians and presidents using this campaign slogan, promises made, promises kept. You ever heard that? When you hear that kind of nonsense, don't believe it. None of them do exactly what they said they will do all of the time. They have to go through the Senate. They have to go through the House. They have to go through the judicial branch. Nobody, nobody can fulfill all the promises they've made to our people. Nobody, that is, except the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. And he doesn't have to run anything by anybody. He sits in the heaven, heavens. He does all that he pleases. He accomplishes all his purposes, which is exactly what Paul kicks his sermon off with. He says, let's just get this thing, this one thing straight right from the get-go here. 
The God of Israel is absolutely sovereign over every single tiny minuscule event in your life, every occurrence throughout the history of the world. It says, first of all, verse 17, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers, made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Boom. From the very first words, he tells of God's sovereign election. Like it or not, and the people of Israel, they did like this doctrine, by the way. They love being God's chosen people, unlike many uh, professing evangelicals today. Like it or not, Paul says, God chose you if you're a believer. He chose you, and he's sovereign over salvation. Look at the first verses, just this first introduction here, these first five, four or five verses. Verse 17, God chose, God made, God uplifted, God led them out. Verse 18, God put up. Verse 19, God destroyed seven nations. God gave them their land. Verse 20, God gave them judges. Verse 21, God gave them Saul. Through his prophet, Samuel, God orchestrates every minute detail, every, every molecule in his creation to bring his people to salvation and reconciliation to himself. I mean, he did it in the days of Noah. He did it in the days of Abraham. He did it in the days of Moses. He did it in the days of Samuel and David, and he does so even to this day here. With uplifted arm, Paul says, he led his people out of Egypt. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, Paul says, he put up with them in the wilderness. He he called a nation, he rescued a nation, he put up with a nation. This this means he bore with them. He bore with this nation amidst their murmurings, their grumblings, their disobedience, which was met with the judgment of having to wander in the desert for 40 years. Actually, this is a a nod uh, by Paul to Deuteronomy 1, uh, verses 30 and 31, where it says, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. He carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. He, He carried you. Even though you were kicking and screaming the whole way, even though you were tugging at his collar and saying, let me go, Dad, like some infant in the ice cream aisle who doesn't get their popsicle. He carried you. Remember, you're going to hear a perfect sermon today. We're going to get 41. He carried you to the land that he promised to your fathers. Verse 19, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, Paul says. These nations, this is the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. He gave, he fought for them. After that, Paul says, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. This is really a retelling of God's sovereignty amidst Israel's continual rebellion, which both found their culmination, by the way, at least in the Old Testament sense, in 
what Paul says next in verse 21. Then they asked for a king, right? God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Meaning that while the Exodus, uh, the Israelites of Exodus, and in Paul's day and even today, love the fact that they are God's chosen people, they love the doctrine of divine sovereign election, they hated the idea of that same sovereign God then ruling over them. They wanted to be God's people, but they didn't want to be God's people. 1 Samuel 8 says this, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Your, son do, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge, judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me, serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. I delivered them, yet they forsake me. They want to be the chosen people of God, but they don't want to then submit to me as God. So like fools, they bow to these other gods, these idols. And they say, we will not have him be king over us. We can see that today, right? Well, Jesus is my savior, but he's not my Lord. Who came up with that? I love this uh, by Spurgeon. I've probably quoted it a number of times before. Men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop, to fashion worlds and make stars. They will allow him to be in his almary, to dispense his alms and bestow his bounties. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear up the pillars thereof, of the, to light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And we proclaim and enthrone God, Spurgeon says, and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creatures as he thinks well without consulting them in the matter. Then it is that we are hissed at and reviled. And then it is that men turn a deaf ear to us, for a God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon his throne in whom we trust. How about you guys? How about all of you? Do you you like the reality that God is seated upon his throne in heaven and doing all that he pleases? Does that bring comfort to you? Do you like that he is now, even now, seated upon his throne, sovereignly orchestrating all the events and circumstances in your life and the lives of everyone that you've ever known? Do you take comfort in this reality? Or do you you shrink from it? Do you gnash your teeth and clench your fist at God when the going gets tough, when things go wrong? Do you recognize him as sovereign Lord, Lord of lords, king of kings, or do you hate 
that there is a God who, re- who reigns supreme. Well, a God who reigns supreme is the God that is revealed in this book. A.W. Pink said, uh, he is the most high, Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. None can thwart him, none can hinder him. That's really important to know especially in light of what Paul says next. The sovereign God of the heavens and the earth gave Israel a king, a handsome, tall, strapping young Benjaminite. He then removed that king, but for a specific purpose, right? Look at verse 22. When he had removed him, he raised up or appointed David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Now, let's not skip over this here. What do you notice about this verse? What do you see in this verse here? What stands out uh, in light of the thousands of of years of rebellion that we just read about? I see, that's one thing to, to notice. Another is a magnificent display of the steadfast love of the Lord. The, the loyal love of the Lord, the faithful, loving kindness of Yahweh for his people. Remember, they rejected me. Uh, they spurned me after all I've done, delivering them from slavery, uh, giving them this land, fighting these battles for them. I've, I've been protecting them. I've been prote- fighting for them. And they forsook me. They, they wanted another king. They didn't want me as king. They hate me. But you know what? I love them. I love them and I made a promise. And I'm no politician. When I say I will bless a people and then bless a people who will bless my people, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Paul will go on to ask in his uh, epistle to the Romans, I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel? By no means. Uh, The same ones Paul continues to speak to here in verse 22. The synagogue rulers say, you have some words of encouragement for us this morning? And Paul says, you better believe it. Uh, To his brethren in the synagogue, his kinsmen according to the flesh, along with these God-fearing Gentile converts to Judaism, he says, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. He brought a Savior, Jesus just as he promised, just as he promised, as he promised. Here's a proclamation of divine promise and divine fulfillment. He didn't have to go too far either. God's word abounds with promises and fulfillments of his promises, but the fulfilled promise Paul is about to explain is the greatest one of all because it's a promise a commitment, uh, an unbreakable commitment from the sovereign God to manifest the greatest demonstration or, or example of his loyal love, of his steadfast love for his chosen people. He sent his Savior, a Savior, a Deliverer, a Rescuer, a Messiah, who would be the son of David, a, a descendant of Israel's greatest king, 
would be from the loins of David, but would in fact be greater than David. David, who Paul will get back to, to in just a moment, but not before he fast forwards a thousand years later to identify who the Savior was and exactly who the fulfillment of this promise is, who this Messiah is. A thousand years after King David, Paul says in verse 24, before the Savior's coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he says, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. I'm not the promised Savior of Israel. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. How about a word from the prophets? Isaiah said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John came on the scene, and when he was pressed by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, asking if he was the Messiah, which they all anticipated and expected to come at any moment, he said, no, that's not me. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, Jesus said, uh, those born of, of women uh, of those born of women, none has arisen greater than John the Baptist. There has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But even John said of himself, no, I'm not the one. I, I'm just the herald of the promised Messiah. I'm not even worthy to take the place of the lowest slave in Israel and untie the sandals of the one who is to come. Just wait, he's coming. Now watch this in verse 26. In this verse 26, I want you to notice this. You can almost hear his voice, the, the voice of the Apostle Paul, shift uh, from one of bold, unashamed declaration of the sovereign will and purposes of the Lord being fulfilled to, to like this genuine, heart-filled plea for them to recognize that these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. He says, brothers, sons, of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. We can understand this, right? When, when we speak to our unbelieving friends, when we speak to our unbelieving family, if they could just see it, if they could just, if they could just hear it, if they could just hear the good news and you just want to say, just please understand what I'm telling you, the Messiah has come. Just realize and, and recognize the overwhelming joy that comes with trusting in the promises of an infinitely holy, yet infinitely compassionate and merciful sovereign Lord. Please hear this, brothers. You can see this. And, and he makes a beeline for the cross. See, he says, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because... They did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. He goes in right before his brothers and he preaches the death of Christ, the death of Israel's Savior. He wasn't the earthly king we were all expecting. He, he wasn't the mighty warrior who would come in and deliver us out from under the bondage of Rome. He, 
Rome. He wasn't going to ride in on his white horse and save the day to put us all in places of prominence, ruling alongside him forevermore. Not this go-round, anyway. Not this time. Instead, he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, a, a man. God came down from the earth that he spoke into existence by the word of his power and took on human form. He's born of a virgin. He, he lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. And yet, the people who claim to know most about God, the chosen people of God, these leaders of Israel, went the same route as their predecessors in the days of Moses, in the, in the days of Joshua and Samuel and David. They didn't recognize him as God. But instead, again, forsook God. They rejected the promises of God. They rejected the loving kindness of God again. They rejected God's Savior. They, they rejected the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. They killed him. They killed the author of life by hanging him on a cross of wood. Verse 29, when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. What does that mean, all, all that was written of him? What does that mean? It means those scrolls over there in the synagogue, right there in the center of the synagogue, those scrolls have been crying out to you, telling you who the Savior was going to be telling you that, that he was going to come and be oppressed and be afflicted, yet he will open not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shares is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Because, but he was pierced for our transgressions. It was written of him. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. It was written of him that he was buried with a rich man in his death. They had all these prophecies and many more, and yet they killed him anyway. And now they don't, they don't believe. We'll see next week. They don't believe even when they tell him that he lives. He lives. May we never become theological eggheads where we just know doctrine, we just know doctrine, we can spout out all the Christian doctrine words, and we don't understand what they're saying. I mean, there's a lot of seminary professors that can spout off Christian words and terminology and tell you where things are, but they don't have any idea what it's actually saying. That's the heart condition of these men in the synagogues, but watch what happens in verse 30. Yeah, they killed him. They hung him on a tree. They placed him in this tomb, but God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul preaches the gospel. The foundational, fundamental, non-negotiable truths of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Peter did the same thing in chapter 2, right? He preached the perfect life, 
the sacrificial death, the penal substitutionary atonement for sinners, taking the place on the cross for all who would believe, for all who would call upon his name and believe in the burial, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord of glory. Paul says in verse 33, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The summary of this verse is the leaders in Jerusalem assassinated him and the living God in heaven vindicated him, accepting his sacrifice by raising him from the dead, which is the only way that he could save his people, the only way he could give them new life, eternal life. This is promises made, promises Paul said he appeared to many witnesses. He said, we saw him. In 1 Corinthians, a, a, a letter yet to come, he said, many who saw him are still alive. And I've seen him, Paul says, and I've heard him. And I'm telling you, under the power of the Holy Spirit of God who called me and enabled me to come here to the synagogue, Jesus is that Savior. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He is the promised one. If you don't believe me, let's go back to those scrolls, Right? Here are my supporting texts. Verse 33. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is said, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. And today I have begotten you. This word begotten here, it means unique. It means one of kind. Though born of a woman, he had the nature of God. He did not have a sin nature. He was Truly God, yet truly man. He was the very essence of God, but in human flesh. Not to mention, he was the first and only at this point to be raised from the dead, uh, resurrected and given a glorified body. This doesn't have anything to do with Jesus being created, as the Mormons would say, or the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. He was not created. He is the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus who... God raised from the dead is the fulfillment of the statement in the second psalm. Paul goes on, And as for the fact that he has raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. We read that in the opening. That's Isaiah 55. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, this is Psalm 16, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. He was laid with his father. He saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Psalm 2, Isaiah 55, Psalm 16. It's all right here. He's saying, guys, we know these texts. You know these texts, and you know that David died. His grave is back home. Body, bones, they're probably dust by now. They're probably gone. But not Jesus. Not Jesus of Nazareth. 
He was raised before his body decayed, proving that he was and is the Holy One of God, the, the incorruptible Holy One of God. Peter says, you remember when Peter said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Paul follows up his proclamation of promise here by quoting Isaiah 55. This language is so beautiful to me. I love that he draws from Isaiah 55. Incline your ear, come to me, that your soul may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Can't you see Romans chapter 9 in this sermon? You see when when Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Can't you see the same anguish in Paul's heart in the synagogue? He said he would be cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not there yet. But Paul was. And here he stands before a synagogue full of them. And so in verse 38, he gives the invitation, and notice who it extends to. Everyone. Everyone who believes. So his brothers, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jews, and the Greek. He says, let it... Be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now, this is what sets some of them off, all right? Enrages them, something we'll see next week. People begin hearing the good news. The leaders can sense that it's messing with their Judaism, their works-based religious system. But Paul says, listen, (laughs) the law won't justify you. It will bound you. It actually places a burden on you and sets on you a never-ending quest to satisfy that which frankly cannot be satisfied by any mere mortal. Paul says you can't keep the law of Moses. Stop trying to earn your way to God. He says you need to be forgiven. You need to be rescued. You need to be set free. You need to be acquitted of all the charges against you, past, present, and future. The law can't do it for you. It can only condemn you. Brothers, you need to be freed from the law. You need to be truly justified in the sight of a holy God, declared righteous in his eyes, just as if you've never sinned. And the only way to do that is by placing your faith and and your trust in the only one who has obeyed the Father one who was born under the law but kept the law perfectly in its entirety, making him the perfect sacrificial lamb to take away the sins of not only Israel but of the whole world, of all who would believe. This is a statement. It's a statement on justification by grace alone through faith alone. If you would but trust God, allow God to rule and reign in your heart, he already rules over your life anyway. He's already sovereign Lord of all. But if you would come to him by faith, believe in and surrender yourself, trusting in his everlasting promises, he will free you. 
He will set you free from the heavy yoke of the law. It's all right here in this 13th chapter of Acts. It's all in this sermon, this exhortation in this synagogue on this Sabbath. Paul then wraps up this exposition with an appeal, but now in the form of an admonishment. It's a warning to these men of Israel and even the God-fearers among them. He says in verse 40, Beware, take notice, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am uh, doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if someone tells it to you. He quotes Habakkuk 1. He says, listen now. Hear me, brothers. Don't make the same mistake our fathers made a few hundred years ago when, when God sent his prophet saying, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Babylon is coming. Stop rebelling against the plans of the Lord. When he said, if you don't turn from your ways and embrace what I'm doing, I will bring judgment upon you. Remember, they scoffed at him. A scoffer is, is one who doesn't respond to an invitation like this, even though the facts are clearly and plainly communicated to them. That's a scoffer. Don't be a scoffer this, this morning. These guys received the punishment, didn't they, in those days? These people uh, were under the judgment of God, first in a temporal sense, as the Babylonians or Chaldeans came in and ravaged Judah. They took Jerusalem. They ransacked the place. Then in an eternal sense, they were separated from the love of God for all of eternity. And Paul uses this example of the fall of Jerusalem and the judgment of God and his gospel proclamation to a people whom he would gladly die for to say, don't be a scoffer. Don't forsake your God. And I'm saying the same thing to you this morning. Don't be a scoffer. Don't forsake your God. Incline your ear. He says, come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Live, my brothers and sisters. Live. E eternal life is yours if you would but come to him by, through faith in his promised Messiah, his very own son. God in the flesh who came to give his life a ransom for many, who came to be the Savior of Israel, not only Israel, but of the whole world, the Savior of all who would believe in the gospel, call upon his name alone for reconciliation to the Father. And again, I'm saying the same thing to you guys. Don't be a scoffer. Incline your ear. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. Hear him. Hear him through his word this morning. Hear him through the gospel this morning, which says you will never be able to live up to his perfect standards for your life. Which says you can never keep his law. Therefore, you are under his wrath, his condemnation. But you can be delivered. You can be rescued. You can be set free. You can be saved to eternal life with him. Paul calls this the good news. This, and it is good news. It's the best news, right? You can be justified in the sight of a holy God by his grace alone if you would but hear and respond. Cry out to him to save your everlasting soul through Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Would you pray with me now? We'll have Noel and the music team come up to close our time in musical worship.